podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you found the internet's finest source of music that we are contractually obligated to play for you. But first, we're going to start you out with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more trivia I've got for you is directly related to the our turntable talk um, and it's called jazzing it up so <laughs> I didn't spend a lot of time on that name um, oh man people can't see those hands <laughs> so one of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about is jazz musicians would get in these terrible contracts with exclusivity clauses so they couldn't play for any other labels or any other uh, record companies or anything like that so they would be you know uh, required to play for only their one label and so what they would do is make up pseudonyms or these crazy fake names and then go play on other people's records so they could make some money Um, and so your job is to tell me if the name that i'm saying is a real pseudonym of a jazz musician or something i just made up or a guided by voices song or (laughs) there's some of those too okay are you ready yes all right alfonso charm you made that up i did make that up i did all right augustus wainscott that's a real one that is fake i made that one up too all right big skull skull is spelled s-k-o-l that's real that is real. That is Sonny Boy Williamson, who's more known for blues, but he played on a Roland Kirk album, and that was the name he used. All right. Brick. Real. That is fake. I'm sorry. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, though. Okay. Um, Buckshot LaFunk. Fake. That is real. That was Cannonball Adderley. Oh, wow. Yep. That's a good name. Yes, yeah, great name. Great name. All right. Charlie Chan. Fake. That's real. That was Charlie Parker used that name. Wow. I'm okay. blowing this completely. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Cradle Fine Silver. Fake. <laughs> yeah, that, that one's fake. Uh, <laughs> all right. George Lane. Real. That is real. That was Eric Dolphy. Hamster Simpson. Real. That's fake. I'm sorry. Uh, I Ching. Fake. <laughs> that one's real. That was Freddie Red. <laughs> Wait, am I? Maybe I. Maybe I misheard the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm supposed to be getting these wrong. Right? Yeah. I think um, technically they're all fake. <laughs> so if you just go fake the whole way through, you're fine. That's right. <laughs> all right, Samuel Dollar. Real. No, that's, that's fake. <laughs> it's a Ryan Maiden Ryan made name. All right, Man, yours are yours are better than theirs. Yeah, yeah. I need I need to to sell some of these. All right, Slim's Romero, real. That is real. That was Fats Navarro, which makes sense. Okay, Teapot Drake, fake. That is fake. Timothy Dearborn, real. That is fake. I'm sorry. Tony Brazil. Real. That is real. That is Antonio Carlos Jobim. And the last one, Unidentified Cat. Real. That is real. That is Gato Barberi. Barber. Barberi. Barbiero. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Barbiero. All right. All right. That was, you know. <laughs> that was terrible. But, I mean, that was a great quiz. So, I. but I 
did that was abysmal on my part. I think I'm just really good at making up fake jazz names. That's more like a, a win for the trivia master than a loss for you. Man, I should just know that when you're making names up, if it has a noun in it, I should probably say it's fake. <laughs> Hamsters and cribs and yeah, teapot, Drake, yeah. and teapot. <laughs> All right, got some trivia for me? I do. I have an audio quiz today. What I'm looking for is pretty simple, pretty basic. Just give me the artist and the title of the song, and the songs will be played backwards. Here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. Track four. Track 5 Track Okay, you think you know any of those? I know a few. I don't know as many as I would like to know. <laughs> There's no theme connecting them, right? There is no theme connecting these at all other than they're all played backwards. Okay. All right. Okay. That's enough of theme, I suppose. I think it's time to move on to our turntable talk for today. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. The intersection of art and business is a messy place. Fiduciary bottom lines and A&R administrators seem to be some distant planet, light years away from where lyrics and harmonies and beats are felt and expressed with sweat and blood. In a sense, the marriage of money and music is a match made in the recesses of Don Henley's ego, each choking each other, desperate for dominance. Whereas music is often a practice of devotion and energy, attempting to package these passionate acts seem trite, contradictory, and confused. And yet, bands need to eat. Players want to be heard. Artists want fame, recognition, drugs, sex, or money. And money is certainly there to be made. 
Today we're going to explore the tumultuous alliance of record labels and artists, not by viewing the times when these two antithetical worlds were balanced and symbiotic, but by plundering the artifacts left behind in the wake of their all-too-common implosion. The songs written and performed with animosity and ambivalence and arrogance, resistance, surrender, desperation, creativity, and humor. And we're going to look at the betrayal and the mistakes that led there. Today, we're going to explore the history of contractual obligation albums. The exploitation of artists has a long history. There are decades of mistrust brought out by legal processes that unfairly tip the scales in favor of the rich record label executives over the naive, eager, and most likely poor artist. It isn't possible to understand the depths of the crimes against the artist without recognizing the history of exploitation and downright theft of African-American music by record labels throughout the 20th century. The mainstream absorption of black music is an ongoing process that leaves the original innovators with nothing and the labels with an innervated product designed only to make money. Jazz, in its origins, was an expression of African-American culture, both pride and pain, swagger and sadness. And yet the first jazz record, Livery Stable Blues, was five white guys from New Orleans called the original Dixieland Jazz Band, whose leader would later claim to have invented jazz. The story repeats over and over. Paul Whiteman in the 20s tames the primitive sound and creates symphonic jazz. He makes a million bucks a year and is proclaimed the king of jazz. Benny Goodman creates a bopping chamber pop jazz and is dubbed the king of swing. Elvis Presley uh, decides to put aside his sad gospel country tunes for what he was hearing in shanties and juke joints. He whips out an impression of Arthur Big Boy Crudup with a little bit of Blind Lemon Jefferson in the mix, and suddenly this jittery, polite, handsome truck driver is the king of rock. Justin Timberlake's the new king of pop, and he samples his music. It's love and theft, but mostly theft. Most importantly with this appropriation is following the money. In all these cases, the white artists got rich, no doubt, but there were also labels pulling strings and making the real money. The labels that directed this cultural dissemination were chiefly owned and controlled by white people and positioned to engage in the economic oppression of black music. Again, this is nothing new. In February of 1920, Perry Bradford, an African-American composer, convinced OK Records to record black singer Mamie Smith. Smith's Crazy Blues became a surprise hit for OK, selling a million records, mostly to black consumers, and is considered the first hit blues record. Suddenly, there was a rush to cash in on these race records. Black artists were forced to sign unscrupulous contracts that ensured bosses would make plenty of dough and they would continue and the artists would have continued to churn out music for these labels in order to just survive. Some record labels like Columbia flat out refused contracts involving royalties with black artists. The stories are disturbingly common. Instead of paying royalties, record companies would offer their artists a flat fee for a song. Often unfamiliar with copyright laws, artists would sign to get the minimum fee and void all claim to ownership or future royalties. Fred Paris wrote the classic In the Still of the Night, which sold somewhere between 10 and 15 million copies. He was paid $783. They estimate that the royalties for the song are over 100000 When Chuck Berry recorded Maybelline, his first 45 for Chess Records in 1955, the Chess Brothers made him share songwriting credit. It even says it right on the record label. With prominent disc jockey Alan Freed, as well as the record company's landlord. Tutti Frutti, arguably one of the most important songs in the annals of rock and roll, was bought for $50 by Art Roop of Specialty Records. Roop then owned both the sound, recording, and the publishing side of the breakthrough hit, leaving Little Richard with a half a cent royalty rate per record, which he has rightfully bemoaned for the rest of his career. 
Well, race certainly isn't the only factor in labels and record execs ripping off artists. The racist swindling shows the most repugnant qualities of the music business. The roots of distrust between artist and record label are easily understood. In essence, a record contract is a legal agreement where artists and bands agree to terms in which they create a record or records for the label to promote and sell. Typically, contracts include the record company retaining all or most of the copyright of the songs and retain the master copies of the recordings. The label also typically requires exclusivity, which means under contract the artist can only record for that label. Labels are to promote and distribute the records, and sometimes, in what's called a 360 contract, they also get a portion of the profits from live concerts and merchandise. Artists are usually given a signing bonus, a structured payment, and royalties from the sales of the records. But even on the surface, these contracts are created to favor the label. But really, what's the alternative for the musicians who usually lack funds for creating a professional record with built-in promotion and distribution? A little bit of money and support, and even just the concept of being a signed artist, probably looks pretty good in the face of having to make it on your own. Even in the self-aware time of crowdfunded social media self-promotion, artists that are able to achieve the highest levels of financial success are on major labels. Even small independent labels require their artists to hustle and scrape by. It's easy to see how artists, naive ones especially, find themselves bound to labels with their requirements, exclusivity, artistic controls, and deadlines. As things go south or labels start demanding returns on investments, artists feel squeezed with limited options. Perhaps some mild trickery can earn some extra cash, like jazz artists who would use pseudonyms to circumvent exclusivity contracts to play on other records and make a little extra scratch. Sometimes outright craziness can do the jobs. The Sex Pistols were able to get out of two contracts with two different labels by, well, acting like the Sex Pistols. The Happy Mondays essentially bankrupt their label, Factory Records, by recording their album, Yes Please. The label sent them to Barbados to record with Tina Weymouth and Chris France of the Tom Tom Club at Eddie Arnold's studio. Mostly the label was just trying to get the band away from heroin. Well, in Barbados, they discovered crack cocaine. And then they proceeded to spend all of the financial resources they had, including selling off parts of the studio, to buy crack. When they returned with the master tapes, they held them hostage and threatened to destroy them unless they got some money, probably so they could get heroin. So Factory Records finally ponied up and bought the tapes, and they realized that the Happy Mondays had recorded no vocal tracks. By the time they managed to get vocals and the album finally released, the label was dead. No one said artists are going to take it all lying down. Of course, there's plenty of one-off tracks that bands release as a fuck you to record labels in the recording industry. Here's a quick rundown of, of some of our favorites. The Sex Pistols, EMI, Stiff Little Fingers, Rough Trade, Pink Floyd had one with Have a Cigar, Clash had Complete Control, Nick Lowe had I Love My Label, The Rolling Stones sang a song called The Under Assistant West Coast Promotion Man, which is apparently about a real guy that the record label uh, sent to babysit them. RZA had Protect Your Neck. The Smiths had Paint a Vulgar Picture. Graham Parker had a interestingly named Mercury Poisoning. And Cracker, of course, had It Ain't Gonna Suck Itself. So these are snotty artists whining to fans about the unfairness of their labels. It's not the same level as the systematic and racist atrocities of their predecessor. But hey, they have a right to express their disgust in the industry, which definitely can roll around in his own sick. Which brings us to the most interesting aspects of contract disputes, the labels and songs that are actually created to settle them. I find these particularly great because of how a listener can actually experience how the artist decided to handle their contractual bondage. The sound committed to tape runs the gamut of human emotion. The backstory of why and how these records got made, 
take the sound to new levels of intrigue. So first, let's talk about the boring ways of appeasing the label. Releasing a live album is an easy way of checking the box. These live recordings can be amazing. See Jimi Hendrix and his hastily assembled band quickly recording their concert-epic Band of Gypsies. But on the flip, they can be less than oppressive. See Meatloaf's Wive at Wembley. Now, I do love some meatloaf, but one out of three is, in fact, very bad. As is that line. A band might also scrape together leftover songs, like Buffalo Springfield's Last Time Around, compiled after the band broke up. The album cover even includes a clearly pasted-in Neil Young. Apparently, Photoshop was not as slick in 1968. R.E.M., weary and facing health issues, threw together random tracks created on the 1995 Monster Tour for the New Adventures in Hi-Fi LP, which ended their first contract with Warner Brothers and began a much more lucrative one. The album is sprawling and inconsistent, but it has amazing moments. Joe, for the record, says it's in his top five R.E.M. albums. I'm not so sure. A covers album is another tried-and-true contract fulfiller. The rock and roll album by John Lennon is a prime example. Lennon was being sued by Morris Levy over the Here Comes Old Flat Top line in Come Together, which is almost identical to a line in Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me. As part of the settlement, Lennon agreed to record three songs owned by Levy's company on his next record. Well, recording the album was a series of dysfunctional events. Drunken gunplay in the studio... Phil Spector absconding with the Masters, then another lawsuit by Levy, then Levy taking the demos he had and releasing an album without Lennon's permission, then a lawsuit by Lennon, then an official release of the album, and finally a price war between the two versions of the record. Bands are often forced out of their breakups to record lame semi-reunion albums to avoid litigation. The band's album, Island, is a hastily thrown-together work that was the unfortunate swan song of the original lineup and is frustratingly forgettable. The Mamas and the Papas, People Like Us, is an album that was created to escape a million-pound lawsuit. John Phillips came out of retirement, provided some shitty songwriting, and used heavy-handed vocal overdubs. Michelle Phillips memorably said of the album, it sounded like it was, four people trying to avoid a lawsuit. She's pretty much right. The Stray Cats, 1986 Rock Therapy, saw the group reform just to get out a record to circumvent a lawsuit. Apparently, they went out and got good and drunk, came together, and recorded an album of a bunch of covers. Sounds fun, like a good band that got hammered and banged out some nifty rockabilly tunes. But it's no classic. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Monty Python's final album called Contractual Obligation Album, which, true to its name, was a fulfillment of a deal with Charisma Records, but featured little John Cleese and no Terry Gilliam. It did have an awesome George Peckham run-out groove message that read, Excuse the pause between sides. We just nipped out to the pub for a pint. That's on side one. And, Dear Mum, please send another cuppa down, still cutting the Python LP, Love Porky X, on side two. The record caused two major lawsuits, one for the song Sit On My Face, which was allegedly copyright infringement on a Gracie Fields song. The second for the song, Farewell to John Denver, which featured Eric Idle as a John Denver impersonator that sang a few bars of Annie's song and then is heard getting strangled to death. Original advanced print advertisement by Charisma Records included the tagline, Now a Major Lawsuit. But more than all these examples of artists just trying to escape, let's move into something a lot more fun. Artists making unadulterated statements about their displeasure. Here are the best stories of contractual obligation albums that became bigger than themselves. Phil Spector, mentioned previously for his drunken, gun-toting, master-tape-stealing work, arguably had one of the first great fuck-you songs to a record label. Of course, it was his record label, 
Phillies Records. Spectre owned the label with a partner, Lester Still. For some unknown reason, especially consider Spectre's famous affiable nature, the relationship became strained. The partnership quickly dissolved, but Still, as part of the settlement, was entitled to royalties for the next single by the Crystals. Now, None of that's been verified, but what is certainly true is that in 1963, Lester Sill received a copy of a single called Let's Dance the Screw. Have a listen. Dance the screw. The chorus is simply the word dance chanted six times with Spectre saying, Dance the screw, over and over, reminiscent of Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller. The same verse and chorus repeated on both sides of the single. More a parting shot than a royalty scam, it's a fine piece of auditory venom. As mentioned in the previous episode by Joe, the Rolling Stones have one of the finest contract obligation singles in history. In 1970, the Stones were ready to leave Decca and start their own label. Decca informed them that they still owned them one more single. Mick and Keith were happy to oblige, and they provided Decca with this quaint acoustic blues ballad. Yeah, I'm leaning on Nelson's column But all I do is talk to the line The pretty awesome yet acutely unreleasable single also had an unreleasable name, Cocksucker Blues. Needless to say, Decade didn't release the song until a 1983 rare West German box set though 100 promotional singles made it out into the wild. We should try to find one of those. Decca did retaliate by releasing a compilation album to coincide with the, Stone, with the Stones label's first release. Perhaps the most infamous of contractual obligation recordings are Van Morrison's Bang Sessions. After making a name with them, Morrison signed with Bang Records and gave them a monster single with Brown Eyed Girl. Relations soured quickly as the widow of the label's boss, Eileen Burns, wanted more pop tunes, and Morrison wanted to crank out whatever the hell Van felt like. Things were bleak until Warner Brothers bought out Morrison's contract, with one caveat. He still owed Bang Records 30 more songs. So, Van the Man took to his studio with his untuned guitar, and perhaps a touch of resentment. He banged out the required amount of songs in a single session. Let's have a listen to some of the best of these beauties. I can see by the look on your face that you've got ringworm. I'm very sorry, but I have to tell you that you've got ringworm. You want a Danish? No, I just ate. I've just eaten. Do you want, like I want some bread up front. Oh, bread up front? You want a sandwich? Have a Danish. I'm waiting 
for my royalty check to come And it still hasn't come yet It's about a year overdue I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky God, we put an album together and we're releasing it next week. It's called Blowing Your Nose. It's got a psychedelic jacket. And it's called Blowing Your Nose. Freaky! Freaky! If you got this far And we can do something with you. All right, in case you couldn't tell, those songs were Ringworm, Wanted a Danish, Big Royalty Check, <laughs> Blowing Your Nose, and Freaky If You Made It This Far. Pang decided that maybe his heart wasn't into it, and they didn't release the recordings until 2017, though bootlegs have floated around for years. Van went on to release his moody masterpiece, Astro Weeks, the very next year. And while Warner Brothers were Van Morrison's saviors, they were more often the villain. In 1977, Frank Zappa wanted out of his contract and had just recorded an eight-sided, three-hour-long quadruple album. Warner Brothers wanted four more albums, so Zappa decided to splice up his epic into four easier-to-digest pieces, at least by Zappa standards. Warner Brothers wasn't having it and refused to release the records or pay Zappa. So, as mentioned in the last episode on bootlegging, he took a test press went over to K-Rock Records, told his fans to record and distribute it, and played the whole set on air. Bootlegged and piecemeal releases appeared for many years, but the original intended set did not come out officially until 1996. And now on to perhaps the most mysterious of the contract obligation albums, the confounding Metal Machine music. It doesn't help that Lou Reed never seems to shoot straight about what it is and why he made it, other than maintaining until his death that it's absolutely a legitimate, intentional release. The album can be seen as a passionate work of early drone and electronic music. It can be seen as Lou's foray into avant-garde classical music. He antagonistically told Lester Bangs it was intended for RCA Red Seal classic imprint, but who trusts Lou? It can be seen as a middle finger to RCA Records. Can you just imagine be the execs sitting in their office listening to it for the first time? or it can be seen as a begrudgingly delivered album to meet a legal obligation. This album, which I adore and have listened to in its entirety at least three times in my life, and I'm probably due for another, is really deserving of its own turntable talk. But here are the basics. In 1975, Lou Reed was a commercially viable artist, not an arena monster for certain, but relatively successful and a recognizable name. Reed's fifth solo album was recorded and engineered alone in his loft. He lined up a couple of amps and leaned guitars with open tunings against them. The vibrations caused feedback and harmonics seemingly randomly. Lou experimented with the instruments and amp settings and used a tape machine and microphones to record four 16-minute pieces. For those of you uninitiated, or maybe you've forgotten, consciously or not, here's the sound. Though seemingly unreleasable, this was Lou Reed, and it was released. 
The record initially sold about 100,000 copies, which made it the best-selling noise album of all time. But many copies were immediately returned, and it was pulled from many record store shelves right away. As noise rock came into the mainstream with punk, post-punk, and college rock, the album was an inspiration. For all that Metal Machine music is, it's an amazing encapsulation of Lou Reed. Angry, vengeful, mysterious, dishonest, relentless, visionary, and pretentiously abhorrent. Neil Young and David Geffen had a pretty memorable tiff in the 1980s that left several interesting albums in its wake. Geffen signed Neil Young away from Reprise to his fledgling company with the promise of integrity and artistic control. With his newfound freedom, Young recorded and presented Trans, which was a baffling album that prominently used a vocoder and synclaver synthesizer. Young would later state that these electronic components were directly inspired by a communication exercise he had practiced with his son Ben, who had cerebral palsy and was unable to speak. The album predictably flopped. Neil Young then offered up offered up to Geffen Old Ways, which was a country-timbed album recorded a few years earlier. Geffen wasn't interested and attempted to strong-arm Young into making a rock record. And he did. Sort of. The next release, Everybody's Rocking, was a 25-minute rockability record full of predictable covers and uninspired originals. Geffen was not happy. He sued Young for $3.3 million on the grounds that his albums were not commercially viable or representative of his previous work. Well... Neil filed a $21 million counter-lawsuit that said Geffen was in breach of contract because he was assured creative freedom. The suit ultimately ended with Geffen personally apologizing to Young, and it cost him the opportunity to sign R.E.M., who balked at the deal after the incident. Interestingly enough, two more Young records were released on Geffen. The aforementioned Old Ways, another throwaway stinker, landing on water. More of the story is, don't try to heal the Neil. Sometimes a contractual album can be accidentally successful, or accidentally amazing, or accidentally both. Todd Rundgren's rush out of a throwaway album to finish his relationship with Bearsville, for example. The spitefully named The Ever-Popular Tortured Artist Effect produced the silly hit Bang on the Drum All Day that American sports fans are forced to listen to at stadiums or arenas daily. In the late 70s, Marvin Gaye had a bad cocaine habit, a penchant for frivolous spending, a warrant out for failing to make alimony payments, and a lawsuit from his ex-wife, Anna Gordy, who is Barry's sister, when he agreed to give her half of all the royalties from his next Motown record to settle. At first, Marvin was prepared to give a less-than-stellar performance, but as he started writing, he ended up recording one of the finest and most gut-wrenching reflections on divorce and dissolution of love. It's an album called Here, My Dear. Brutally honest and emotionally insightful, the record holds no punches, making direct comments about how Anna used their son as a pawn in their breakup and how she lied to God by breaking her wedding vows. Even though Marvin was by no means known for his marital fidelity, uh, stars often pray to a much more forgivable higher power. The gatefold art shows a board game called Judgment, with a man's hand giving a coin-like vinyl to an outstretched woman's hand. The man's side of the board showed only a piano and a tape recorder, whereas the woman's side had a house, a ring, cars, piles of money, and a spider. Symbolic, if I had to guess. Though now held as a masterpiece, it was received as a cruel joke at the time and didn't sell well enough to reach the minimum of the settlement. Marvin was forced to pay Anna monthly payments until one famously fatal April Fool's Day in 1984. He still owed almost $300,000. After completing his Berlin trilogy, David Bowie assumed that his time with RCA was up. He was counting the double live stage as two LPs. Well, RCA did not. 
Bowie, the consummate professional, took to the studio and recorded Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, which is one of his most critically regarded late period records and had the smash hit Ashes to Ashes. In being forced to do his final record for the label, Bowie achieved the unthinkable, maintaining a balance of creative and artistic freedom while being commercially viable. Perhaps the most famous and intriguing case of contractual unhappiness is Prince vs. Warner Brothers. Gosh, the WB seems to pop up again and again. The epic battle is another deserving of its own turntable talk, but I'll give you the lowdown. The Purple One has always bucked up against the system of the recorded music industry. He's made dramatic statements about his treatment by his record label, peaking during 1993 contract dispute when he started performing with Slave written on magic marker on his face, and of course the infamous name change to an unpronounceable symbol, sometimes called the love symbol. He also advised all musicians to never sign with a record label, which is easy to preach when you're already a millionaire. To get out of his label deal, he started spewing out albums at an incredible rate to free him from his record contracts. He released four albums on Warner Brothers between 1994 and 96. the two most notorious being Come, which I really like but is often panned, and Chaos and Disorder, which is no classic, nor did Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, intended to be when he cobbled it together. He also finally released the seven-year-old Black album, which he, which he had forced Warner Brothers to pull from stores after forcing them to release it when they were hesitant. It was pretty well bootlegged by this point. However, it was done. Prince was finally free from the vile grasp of Warner Brothers, and in celebration, Prince released Emancipation, a 36-song reflection on freedom. Not that I am in any way trying to defend the fat cats here, but I do think the Prince battle is deserving of a little perspective from the other side. When Warner Brothers signed 17-year-old Wonderkind from Minneapolis in 77, they gave him a pretty decent amount of room to grow. His first four records sold moderately, but certainly not at the heights that 1999 and eventually Purple Rain would take him on his way to being the untouchable pop icon. The contract dispute really started occurring because Prince wanted to be able to release albums, however, and as often as he wanted. A three-song LP on Tuesday and a three-disc set next week. Warner Brothers was worried about market saturation, promotion, pretty pragmatic things. Again, record labels do have to make money, and not just to line their pockets, which, of course, they are doing. They work on a proven successful redistribution model. The label signs a lot of new, untested artists and put up lots of money to see which ones might make it. Just as Prince didn't get knocked off the label after the nominal sales of his first albums, the labels had to take money from more successful artists to help keep them afloat and recoup their losses there. Interestingly enough, Prince would somewhat align himself with the record labels later in life by trying desperately to keep his music from being given away for free online, even from legal sources like YouTube or iTunes. Just a bit of perspective on how your attitude might change when you are the one who owns the right to your music. Petulant rocker or courageous freedom fighter, Prince might have been a little bit of both. Either way, you have to admire his ability to take charge of his situation. There's seemingly no end to contract disputes nor the artistic statements they bring forth. More recently, the Strokes' Come Down Machine is a pretty well-documented as a contract fulfillment album that the band didn't promote or even bother to record a new video for. They just kind of pasted together old clips. And independent labels and artists seem to be having strife in a tough music industry. Calvin Johnson's pioneering indie label K Records has been in the news lately about being unable to pay some of their most successful artists, Kimya Dawson and the microphone's Phil Elvrum. The uneasy alliance of money and music will continue on. Now, most 
record contracts have an acceptability clause to guard against artists creating unlistenable albums or unflattering content, hurting the chances of there ever being another metal machine music or cocksucker blues. But as long as the artists are getting screwed by the man, there will be retaliation. Let's just hope we get to hear it. I didn't realize that Here My Dear was not as critically acclaimed as it is today when it came out. I think it's one that in Berlin, or at least Side 2 Berlin, are like two of the most devastating albums I've ever heard. It's really my favorite of his of Marvin Gaye's albums. As I started writing this, I listened to it again. I, I do have it on record, but I haven't listened to it probably in two or three years. It's amazing. It is yeah. horrible, yeah. though. It's it's up there with, yeah, Blood on the Tracks, you know, it's... It's 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 a pretty it, it's just very real, and that Van Morrison album. It's a little known fact that we had an episode about Tiny Tim earlier, and one thing that you left off was that that album inspired almost all of his Tiny Tim's later albums. <laughs> <laughs> it was it like, Santa Claus has AIDS or something? Yes. Wasn't that one of his? Yeah, that's yeah, that Van Morrison. That's... Santa Claus has got the AIDS, but the, remember the AIDS he was speaking about was the dietary supplement, not the um, horrible. Uh, Tiny Tim got a hold of the outtakes from that band <laughs> session. <laughs> Could you imagine? Imagine what the outtakes of that would have been. <laughs> the stuff he threw away. <laughs> um, Constipation blues. <laughs> anyways, I think one thing I realized as I was writing this is I, I think we really need to do one on Metal Machine Music. Like a full... And there's just so much stuff about Metal Machine Music. And it's definitely, I think, my favorite contract obligation album. Even though I don't know if there's any proof that it actually is. People just kind of assume that it was. So It was. Even if you pretended to like it for... 45, 50 years. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very interesting album that I bet Lou Reed never actually sat through. Probably not. He probably didn't even listen to it when he was recording it. So. Oh, I, yeah, I bet he just left. Left <laughs> the room. All right, I think we are ready to hear some music. First song we're going to go into right now is uh, by a band named Court, K-O-R-T. It is from their 2010 album called Invariable Heartache, and the song is called Picking Wild Mountain Berries. Where you been? Where you been? It's the same old question again. What's the use, baby? What's the use? They're never gonna turn us loose You got dirt all over your face And your lips get way out of place We're you gonna tell them what we tell them every time before We're gonna leave us alone We want us to come home We've been busy making marriage
That was Pickin' Wild Mountain Berries by Court off of their album Invariable Heartache, released in 2010 on City Slang Records. Court is mostly a duo. It's Kurt Wagner and Courtney Tidwell on vocals. There's also William Tyler is playing guitar and some of the members of Lamb Chop are, on, are playing in the band. And Courtney Tidwell is a Nashville, Nashville musician. Her mother was a country singer, and her grandfather owned Chart Records in the 60s, owned and operated, so he kind of ran everything there. And Kurt Wagner is more known for being the lead singer-songwriter of Lamb Chop, a prominent Nashville band for probably 25 years now, which makes me feel really old. Great band. The album was put together by Courtney, and it is a collection of songs that are all covers, and the originals were all recorded on her grandfather's record label chart records in the 1960s. It's just a nice collection. This is my favorite. It's a real light, light song, just a lot of fun. Uh, the whole album is really good. And one of the issues of the album, I don't have this one, comes with a CD of the original songs, which would be really wonderful to have. That is our first track for tonight. All right. Um, I got our next couple tracks, and they are linked thematically. I think you'll be able to figure it out. Uh, the first one is Like a Ship.
Pastor T.L. Barrett and the Youth for Christ Choir with Like a Ship. And that's off their self-released album uh, from 1971, Like a Ship Without a Sail, that was reissued by Light in the Attic in 2010, and it was recently reissued by Numero Group in 2017. Chicago activist and pastor T.L. Barrett had just found his savior and gotten on the straight and narrow path in the late 60s. He had a calling to keep the youth off the streets that had nearly broken him, so he started a youth choir at his Chicago Mount Zion Baptist Church. The Youth for Christ Choir, led by Barrett, was approximately a 40-member ensemble of children ages 12 to 19, which grew out of his Tuesday night weekly choir meetings. In 71, he elicited the help of some of Chicago's finest studio musicians and uh, noted chess records arranger and saxophonist Gene Barge to lead his youth choir, and they recorded what I think is one of the finest gospel soul records ever committed to wax. Uh, Despite this fantastic record being released in the perfect time as far as a wave of gospel crossover hits, you had Edwin Hawkins' Oh Happy Day, the Staple Singers were big, Aretha Franklin was doing it, even Elvis put out a gospel album. The record really failed to go anywhere. It was self-published. So Pastor uh, Barrett recorded and released a few additional records, but he had no musical success. However, in 2010, uh, Light in the Attic reissued this record, and it exploded. It was met with all sorts of praise and critical acclaim that that it deserved. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end with just a simple lost-and-found record. Barrett was charged with duping parishioners with a strange pyramid scheme that he claimed would be um, for community development. Investigators discovered that uh, over 1,500 people had lost more than two and a quarter million dollars to Barrett's pyramid screen. He claimed that these uh, fifteen hundred uh, that a fifteen hundred dollar investment would return at least twelve thousand, but most of the folks, poor folks, never got any money back. So Barrett agreed to repay the one point two million by nineteen ninety eight, uh, or face incarceration, and he did pay back the money. And he was kind of a kind of had two sides because he he would remain an important civic figure for black communities in Chicago. He organized numerous programs in the Robert Taylor public housing complex. He started a big brother, big sister program and a life enrichment program. And the city of Chicago even named a portion of Garfield Boulevard close to his uh, Mount Zion church in Barrett's honor. And he continues to preach today. So it's kind of an interesting story, but um, the record like a ship without a sail it's just just a beautiful record. It's just a great, you know, soulful, somewhat funky um, gospel record that is definitely worth hearing. My second song is Wildfire. Oh 
right, that was the Langley School Music Project with a cover of Wildfire. And that um, comes off Innocence and Despair, which was released in 2001 on Bar None Record and was recently reissued. So the backstory of this, this uh, album is, is interesting, too. Hans Fenger was a uh, Canadian musician who was forced to take a job as a music teacher in 76. He had no idea how to be a music teacher. So he basically came up with this radical idea, which is, which is to just let kids, let the kids guide what they wanted to sing rather than forcing instruction on them. He didn't really care about the technical aspects as long as the kids sang with passion and energy and authenticity, though he did have good musical skills to kind of help elevate the music being a little bit more than just mere accompaniment. With this unique perspective, he recorded two albums with over 50 school children. They were aged 9 to 12, and they came from four different schools. Um, and he recorded this in a gymnasium in Langley, which is near Vancouver in British Columbia. So there were two albums uh, originally recorded, 1976, Lockleal Glenwood and South Karvaloff Schools, and 1977's Hans Fenger, Wicks Brown Elementary School. These LPs were private press, and they were just given to the students and the parents and their teachers and the principals. And so these beautiful and breathtaking and kind of oddly dark releases were just kind of lost in time. So in 2000, this guy named Brian Linz, who is a record collector, found the first record in a thrift store. He um, sent it to this guy, Erwin Chusid, who is a WFMU DJ and a proponent of outsider music. He uh, wrote that book, Songs in the Key of Z, which is a very interesting book. And um, this guy tried to get this record released. He had 10 labels reject the album, which is crazy to me because um, it's such a good record. So finally, Bar None stepped up and released Innocence Despair as a, as a single CD compilation. And when they did, it took off. It was all all over on top 10 lists and stuff like that. And its praises were being sung by David Bowie and Fred Schneider and Richard Carpenter. And uh, rock critic Stephen Hyden summed it up very well. The echoing, yelping renditions of these feel-good music gives off a powerfully aching melancholy. It's the sound of youth frozen on tape as it fades exonerably away. The songs range from uncontrollably peppy to heartbreakingly melancholy. The solo version of Desperado is particularly fantastic. It's a, a billion times better than the Eagles version. But my personal favorite is Wildfire. It takes this crappy Michael Martin Murphy song about a horse and just converts it into this gut-wrenching spiritual awakening. And I don't really want to talk too much about it because I think it speaks for itself. Um, but the album is absolutely classic. I think Joe and I both got it recently when they reissued did you say you almost bought it when it first came out? or? Yeah, when it first came out in 2001 on vinyl, I was living in New York City, and I remember it being at Other Music, and I went in there, and I probably went, I probably went in there once a week, picked it up, looked at it, set it back down, because I didn't have any money, but I wanted to sell things to get it. Uh, I didn't, but I ended up getting it when it, when it came out a few months ago, yeah. finally. Yeah. It's one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life. Yep, it's, it's fantastic. Anyways, those are my two songs. I think you can probably guess the theme. All right. My last song is also incredibly melancholy. It's called You Can Count On Me. I'll just go ahead and play it. If you get in trouble, bring it home to me. Whether I am near you or across the sea. Something to do 
And don't you let them get you up against the wall Cause I'll be there to catch you And I won't let you fall Call me if they hit you below Call me when there's nowhere to go And I'll be there You can count on me And if they all desert you And you start to bend You know I won't let them hurt you And I don't pretend Don't call if you got nothing to say Don't call me if you just want to play But call me on Devil's Day You can count on me You can count on me That was You Can Count On Me. That was by Sammy Davis Jr. It is the it is a vocal version of the Hawaii Five O theme song. And it was from <laughs> it was recorded in nineteen seventy seven on an album he Sammy Davis Jr. made called Sings the Great TV Tunes. It was only released in the Netherlands on twentieth Century Fox Records. The whole album is it looks really good. I I have not heard it, um, but I did look at some YouTube clips. He does the theme from Beretta. He does the theme for All in the Family. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. It's really wonderful. Uh, at least from what, what I was able to find on YouTube, and that's what you should be able to find too. It's pretty easy to find. The record itself is really hard to find. Uh, there's only one copy available on Discogs right now, and it's from the Netherlands, I think, so its shipping is just embarrassingly high. I have it on a various artist compilation also called You Can Count On Me but it's uh, part six in a series called The Manifesto of Groove and put out by Brown Sugar Records out of Germany. The whole series is amazing. This is my favorite one. I think I have two of them. Two of their series. It's a double LP. It's got just a whole bunch of wonderful stuff. It starts off with the Sammy Davis Jr. Not all of it is kind of sticky stuff. Nina Simone is on there. There's a really good Lou Rawls Charles Erland, Willie Bobo, Chico Hamilton. Uh, it's just Della Reese. There's a, and Art Blakey even. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff on this, and it, I just love that it starts off with Sammy Davis Jr. singing the Hawaii Five-O theme song that didn't have any words until he got his mitts on it. So, do you think he like sat down at a bar like and wrote on a cocktail napkin? Do you think he just like uh, put some words for the song? Or I mean, he didn't write that song. <sighs> He didn't write the words. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> he absolutely did not write those words. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I looked it up earlier. It was like art something. It probably some some A and R guy. One of his know. lackeys. Yeah. Yeah. One of his one of his lackeys. But I did get to look up. I never knew. Um, I was looking up some information on this record. It's very there. It just isn't much. So I started looking up looking up information about his eyeball. Uh, I didn't know how he had lost it. Did you? No. Is this a, no, is this a joke? In, no, 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 this is not, no, this is not a joke. It's not funny to make fun of handicapped people. Um, 
1954, on November 19th of 1954, he was in a car accident. And uh, the steering wheel, this is really weird. I tried looking up what this might have looked like, but the steering wheel where the horn is on the on the center of the steering wheel, there was like um, like a bullet-shaped, I don't even trying to think, I wouldn't even know what to name it. Like it was just a decoration, but... When the when he hit his head, when he oh when I he know hit, what you're talking about. Eyeball went but, into it. Well, it used to be like steering. They used to do like steering sticks, or some people had those. They're called like suicide sticks now because they're so dangerous. But gosh, I don't even. It's so weird. It was. A, I think it was a fairly regular thing. On it was a bullet shaped horn button, which was a standard feature in 1954 and 55 Cadillacs. It was just sounded brutal. Uh, but I'd always wondered what happened to his eye. How did that happen? Uh, now now we all know that's that's the kind of quality educational tips you can get on the highway hi-fi podcast that's right if you're ever in pub trivia and someone says how did sammy davis jr lose his eye or which eye did he lose it's his left eye by the way <laughs> was i don't know what i don't know where it is now but it's honking somebody, the horn in heaven so no somebody has that eye right <laughs> i would hope so i'm sure it's gonna go up on ebay Whenever Sammy Davis Jr. dies. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, let's veer away from that real quick. Yeah, let's um, take care of that trivia. Okay. For the audio trivia round, second time through, I'm going to play the six clips. And all I need is the artist and title. And each of the songs or each of the clips will be play- is played backwards. So here they go. Track one. Track two. We'll do it in the right order. Okay. All right. I think number one is Working in the Coal Mine by or Working in a Coal Mine by Devo. 
Number one is Lee Dorsey working in a coal mine. Oh, okay. Well. So, right song. Right song. Yeah. But I'll I'll take it because I don't have much. I did not get number two. Number two is really hard. It's the Nightcrawlers with Little Black Egg. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I would have got that. That's a good song. That's a good song, though. Okay. I think number three is Hey, Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. So close. It's doing the crawdaddy. <laughs> I really thought you would get that one for sure. That I, was that was your slow pitch softball one there. That was the rest of it. I didn't think you had a chance. I mean, you're talking about Bo Diddley's got one beat. When you play it backwards, <laughs> it's still the same beat. All right, I'm I'm running out of things I could get right here. I think number four was "It's Oh So Quiet" by Bjork. It is Bjork, but it's "Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine." Jeez. Okay. And I honestly don't have any anything for five and six, though I think okay. six was very familiar. Track five is Huey Piano Smith with Little Liza Jane. Okay. And I think Tex will probably get that one if he's listening. And number six is actually the song you picked first. It's Devo with Working in a Coal Mine. Oh, gosh. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so it's bookended. Gosh, they don't sound anything alike. I'll have to listen to them again. That was... That was a good quiz, other than I didn't get any of it right. Well, good. That made up for me not getting any of yours, and it was just for fun anyway. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Well, uh, you have made it through another fine episode of our podcast, The Highway Hi-Fi. We could really use some help getting the word out about the podcast. So if you like it, please uh, give us a review on iTunes or, more importantly, tell a friend or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, Joe's going to give you all the the social media stuff. Uh, My little spiel, uh, as always, go out and and treat yourself. Buy a record. Buy that Langley School Music Project. That's great. You should go buy that one. Or, you know what? Go buy that Sammy Davis Jr. Sings Television's Greatest Hit Songs. You deserve it. There's probably one or two of you out there who need that record. Get it. Get it's it. on my. It's on my watch. I was about to say, get it before Joe does. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, no. Make sure you support musicians and music stores, and uh, hopefully, y'all had a great record store day and got some cool stuff. We really enjoyed talking with Chris Brown about record store day. Yeah, he's such a great guy. He's super nice, and uh, hopefully, he'll be back on sometime soon. And yeah, we're gonna have hopefully have a couple guests coming on in the next handful of episodes. And Joe's going to tell you what you can do to support us. Yeah, come to our Facebook page. Uh, start leaving comments. We try to post things quite a bit there and on Twitter. Um, we'd like, love to have more discussions on Facebook about things. It doesn't have to be about the show. It can be about any music-related thing or anything else you want to talk about. Uh, you can email us, podcast at gmail.com. We have a website. Uh, we, if you want to just Google search it, it's one of the Google sites. Uh, pretty easy to find as well. We would love to have some people visit, leave some messages. We're pretty quick with communicating back to people. And we really appreciate any of you who have come out and said nice things. Um, it's it's just really very much appreciated that anybody is, is taking the time to listen and, and has said positive things. It's it's a lot of fun to do, and, and we hope you are enjoying it. Yeah, and if you have any ideas for things that would be good shows or interesting things or even songs you think we should play we'll uh, do what we can to to uh to let y'all participate but yeah like joe said we appreciate you listening if you made it this far uh i hope you all have a wonderful um wonderful week and we will talk to you next time hey.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.